you been done? Evening, Omar. How are you? Yeah, very good, thanks. How are you doing? All okay. It feels like the timing's quite nice for this evening, isn't it? Listen to us chat football, well, if you if you if that way inclined, and then uh, watch some champs, watch some proper content afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're listening on the podcast, then uh, you get to hear all our rubbish predictions and then uh, get to laugh at us. <laughs> well, I think you usually do that to me, don't you? When you, you tell me <laughs> how wrong I usually am, or, well, or just going for the, the easy option. Well, massive game tonight. So we'll have to finish on that note um, and get some not just kind of scoreline, but some kind of more detailed predictions to see see how it all pans out. Um, yeah, a couple of interesting topics to discuss today. Um, Premier League overseas 39th game rearing its head again, uh, as well as some news out of the Super League courts, which you'll certainly be the expert on uh, compared to me. But worth discussing um, the prospect of the Premier League going abroad again. Um, quick summation of, uh, of the proposal and, uh, and how, if anything's changed since, since the original ones a few years ago. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I think... Look, there's, there's a few things here. I remember it was a good few years now when uh, ago back back when uh, in the midst of um, Richard Scudamore's um, tenure as Premier League chief exec, when you know word spread about this this idea of game thirty nine and um, the idea of an extra round of fixtures um, that the Premier League clubs would take abroad uh, and go into various jurisdictions um, and play uh, and play. Um, you know, actual Premier League matches that would mean something for the season. And I, I remember, you know, it was a good while ago now um, when when the the reports came out and discussion was um, pretty fervent about it. You know, my, my first thought, and we can go into lots of different avenues and details, was, you know, and turned out to be the case to a degree is all of these foreign or, um, you know, non-English football associations being rather annoyed that... Um, you know, the Premier League was effectively going to cannibalise um, its leagues and uh, competitions to a degree, even if it was for one-off. And then, really, just from a integrity of competition and a structural perspective, I was really intrigued about how you just fit another game in and how that is effectively um, pulled out of the hat or the computer or otherwise, and the impact that that has on the extra game for, you know, who plays who and how that is effectively um, uh, worked. And, you know, what seems to be the case always reported I think it was yesterday by David Ornstein in The Athletic, was that uh, the latest Premier League shareholders meeting, which happened last week, I believe, one of the areas that was raised for discussion again was this idea of could games be um, uh, could be located and taken part um, outside of um, a normal traditional home and away fixture. So it's rearing its head again. There's question marks generally about whether and how doable that is. And you know, we've had those conversations quite a while, Omar, but yeah, I'd be fascinated in your sort of view from a from lots of angles, if it's integrity, competition perspective, um, you know, how that would work from a fixture list perspective, how it would weight accordingly for different, you know, categories of clubs, etc. Yeah, I think I mean obviously it helps to start with what's the motivation for it. Um and like it's undeniable the Premier League's got massive fan bases overseas. I, I used to live in Singapore and the, the kind of passion and level of support for, in particular, Liverpool and Man United out there, it, it kind of beggars belief. I think anyone who, who travels out to particularly East Asia and I hear in, in many parts of Africa as well, um, kind of realise how much support there is for the clubs. And I think whilst there is a clear revenue angle here, look, if you take games overseas, um, you're able to not just sell tickets, probably for pretty substantial prices. I, I remember that the friendlies that, Liverpool and Man United used to play out in, in Singapore and they used to charge you know, pretty pretty hefty um, uh, ticket prices for those games. So not only that, but obviously 
there is the additional benefit of the broadcast income. You know, you can imagine if you're a US broadcaster and there's a prospect of a game on your shores, it becomes much easier to connect for fans to connect to that game or connect to the league um, and therefore be much more enticed. So I think, you know, there's a clear revenue angle, but there is a clear, um, you know, there's a lot of fans out there who are as passionate, in many cases, more passionate than large subsections of, of fans in, in the UK. So I don't think it's totally kind of uh, revenue. It, it is about trying to connect to, to those fans as well. Um, but I think where it falls over is is the areas you discussed. I think the I actually don't think the integrity of competition issue thing is um, it's not a massive deal. Like if we were to, if as as we tend to do at Twenty First Group, if we were to kind of build a model that tried to understand well how much what's the probability of the title going to someone else or someone else being relegated due to an additional match, I think you'd find probably it's quite low. It's like it's not a massive uh, impact. Um, but the issue is that one time it does happen is, you know, a huge issue for for the league. And particularly as it relates to relegation, where you can imagine, I don't know, if we take an example this season, Watford um, play their 39th game uh, against Man City. And, uh, I don't know, uh, Newcastle play theirs against um, Brighton, uh, as an example. Um, and Newcastle end up getting the win. And, and Watford, obviously, well, as they tend to do, would, would lose to Man City that's got a clear issue um on balance of probabilities that that one game probably wouldn't make the difference but the one time it does happen it's it's a major issue and i think impossible to get around that either by making a 39th game or a 38th game with home advantage home advantage obviously stripped which which i actually think would be an even smaller effect um we we did some modeling around when the there were discussions in april may 2020 around playing games at neutral venues and um playing games without fans and so on and we found that actually moving certain games to neutral venues wasn't going to have a massive impact on or a massive projected impact on, on the outcome of the league. Again, there's the issue of the, the one time it happens being being the kind of case study that, that sticks. Um, but, but regardless, you know, it's very difficult to get around the, the sporting integrity issue, uh, which they seem, I, I must admit, I'm not super familiar with the NFL um, and to a lesser degree, NBA and, and MLB obviously played games abroad and, and how they've dealt with um, integrity issues but I think that there's much more of a <clears throat> kind of cultural attachment to sporting integrity within European football um, I mean if you just look at the the structure the competition formats that we have they're very traditional very linear in terms of you know everyone plays each other twice um, you know no sense of the kind of draw or randomness coming into the competition it's all about how you perform um, and I think it, that's hugely disruptive to the kind of European psyche um, as it relates to watching sport uh, and I think the other point which you made well as well was was around the impact on the leagues themselves. So um, Don Garber's kind of articulated before, you know, we would see that as kind of almost like declaring war on on US soccer in some respects if, if the Premier League decided to come and play a game. That, or virtually, I would say, I don't know, half of leagues in world football, potentially more already take into account when Premier League games are on in the, in the scheduling of their own domestic leagues. Um, you know, pretty much every league in, in East Asia, Southeast Asia accounts for when Premier League matches are on. So they won't play on a Saturday night, for example, because they know that clashes with an early Premier League kickoff. Um, so you can only imagine the kind of further erosion of, of value in, in kind of local domestic leagues that the Premier League turning up on, on their lawn would have. Uh, and I think that's, you know, maybe you could argue, OK, that's not the Premier League's problem. But but I think it is, you know, philosophically from global football um it is, a, it is an issue that we have in global football at the moment around the, the imbalance of leagues. And I think that would only exacerbate the issue. And, and clearly it's something that's um, potentially a bit more avoidable. 
what's what's your view on it then well um yeah when i was doing a bit of reading on the particular topics we were gonna we're gonna cover um ollie Kay from um that athletic article was talking about actually re- reverse engineering the logic um that the premier league is is using at the moment to, or reported to be using which would be you know how comfortable would um, the Premier League be with Real Madrid, Barcelona being hosted in the UK, for example, um, or a Milan derby um, or otherwise. I mean, maybe we've got such comfort and confidence in our product that one-off games, even very big stellar um, other European club games being held here wouldn't do too much damage or otherwise. But maybe it's just because it's the juggernaut that is the Premier League cannibalising um, that airtime and tension space, even if it's just one-off games um, in other territories and jurisdictions, then becomes the issue. But you know, I'm again, uh, I'm always conscious because you all, you always educate me to the to the contrary about thinking about new structures and new ideas and novel things. Which you know, in a way, you have to move with the times. On to a degree, we talked about um, you know two yearly World Cup changes to the international calendar, and again, this feels like something which. Maybe that maybe at least there needs to be a, a substantive debate around how um, things should work. You know, we, are, are we so wedded to the domestic um, uh, fixture calendar that games can't be um, Premier League games? At least we can talk about maybe other competitions as um, novel ways um, uh, in to to separate or distinguish competitions from competitions. But you know, novel ways in that. Um, you know, a, a lower league Premier League team might be incentivized through higher broadcasting monies to be able to play one of their games um, abroad. So in a way, my question also back to you, Omar, is maybe it doesn't need to be as fundamental as the the chart, not the charge, but the, the format is, which is um, not necessarily a 39th game, but playing one game as a 38th game, but not necessarily playing it as game 38 of sort of perhaps every week there being one game abroad or even just a test case which one or two games are played in non-UK territory per season with clubs that are open to um, maybe receive more broadcasting monies in exchange for a slightly lower um, probability of winning a home match um, because they're willing to take that you know, performance to... Uh, revenue sacrifice but again you know it's it, it form doesn't it, i think part of a wider conversation around um it, it, uh, domestic games different competitions within those domestic games and then obviously the international calendar and where you know club competition is basically seen still as sacrosanct to ensure d- domestic fences in a way you know the domestic competition stays within the domestic geographical fence and for a long time, obviously, for a long, long time, that's seen as sacrosanct. The question is when it happens, you know, we saw it when I think, if I remember correctly, Barcelona were thinking of playing uh, Girona, I think, that was going to possibly happen in Miami, that then the Spanish League uh, pulled the plug on. Don Garber obviously got unhappy about that and in other instances as the MLS commissioner. Um, I just wonder whether this is just part of another um, narrative of the structural changes that at least need to be brought to the table to to be to be considered um, when you know we're going into a very new era of of sport football and the attention economy. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, sure that's that. a big part of the motivation, I suppose, um, for the discussion. I, I think the, the the idea of having one game is is probably, I think, palatable to a degree. I, I think the the bigger issue is, I guess, I suppose, the precedent that it sets and. What happens, you know, do you end up in a situation where in 50 years time, actually, locality doesn't matter. And actually, 
Newcastle United can be based out in Shanghai and, um, you know, Brighton can be in Nairobi and, uh, and you know, Liverpool can be in Buenos Aires. And I think that's, it's, it's you know, clearly the challenge, um, and not the challenge, but the, the reality of um, English football clubs being, you know, 150 years old in, in some in many cases, um, that, you know, that there is the history to protect. And I think actually that a big part of it is that the history is the value of English football and the locality of English football is the value of it. And perhaps the idea of kind of moving locality, it, it, you can't just kind of port um, that, that value to other parts of the world, um, if that makes sense. Where I think it could be interesting is in potentially something like women's football, where um, the again the loc- the idea of locality probably isn't as central to women's football yet, at least, um, and the idea that you could take some of the best women's players and play them in, in other parts of the world, I think would be would be good, obviously, for the English domestic game, but also the, the growth and development of women's football. So I think that's a potential option as well. I was just going to say one other thing, Omar, and it's it's, it's a, a different point, but the same point, which is, do you remember a few years ago when there was even talk of particular clubs looking to have their training bases in different cities to potentially become more attractive to particular particular players so it's almost like would newcastle have a london training facility in order to to train you know on a daily basis and then go up to the go up to newcastle midweek or weekends or otherwise and i know there would obviously be a lot of ferrari around that of players not living in the vicinity or, or or as it may be and obviously there being more Southern and London-based clubs that have been promoted and are sticking around in the Premier League as maybe being more attractive to, to play down south. I was just fascinated in, in that as a, a location point on a slightly different gradient. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's almost like uh, remote working for footballers. Uh, yeah. you, don't have to, you don't have to live in the office as such. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, you certainly have non-commercial teams already, as we know, like Man United and Man City in particular have got offices in, in London. Um yeah, I I could certainly see that happening um, for for certain types of clubs, um, for sure. I I think I, I definitely think though the moment you start pulling on this thread of overseas games, you start pulling on this overall thread of what does it mean to be Manchester United, what does it mean to be you know Brighton and Hove Albion and and so on, and uh, and I'm not sure that's a, that's a it feels to me like a dangerous thread to pull on, um, regardless of how you how you pull at it um, and. And I think, yeah, as I say, it's helpful to take a step back and look at what is the value in, in English football and and not just assume it's in the kind of quality of players or the like the literal brand name of the team, but actually it's it's the history that's rooted in the locality. It's the fact that certain clubs are from certain parts of, of England and have a certain identity as a result of that. And you can kind of football can kind of eat itself I think sometimes by by engineering it so you'll know I'm the, I'm the first person to be open-minded about a new uh, a new competition format but uh, a new approach but this feels to me a uh, a potential dangerous dangerous route completely agree I, Omar I've just brought one of my colleagues from uh, from Sheridan's um, up on the, to the speaking platform as well I hope you don't mind um, yeah, yes, yeah. Nee, I just wondered whether you yeah, you had a question some thoughts any comments which would be great uh, just some thoughts, which are probably quite glib. Um, I do wonder how much of this is an extension of the, you know, the seemingly uh, attempted Americanization of um, English sports, and in particular the Premier League. So, no doubt, it won't have escaped the Premier League's attention that the NFL has very successfully hosted uh, games in the UK. Uh, started with one and has been as many as four 
regular season games, as they call it, uh, so competitive games with stakes. Um, the NFL has obviously overridden the concerns of those teams' um, local fan bases, but um, has proceeded because it's been very lucrative to have games in London uh, and to tap into their fan bases here. So I wonder if this is yet another symptom of, in the same way that you know, the Super League was looked at, um, where there wouldn't be relegation um, and that, you know, the prospect of salary caps, whether this international games is yet another case of the Premier League with an increasing number of American owners looking forlornly at the, the benefits of American sport, um, which include hosting hosting games abroad. Um, you know, the NBA has games in London. I think Major League Baseball had, you know, one of the most historic um, rivalry games played in London uh, between the New York Yankees and, and the Boston Red Sox. Um, again, each of those historic storied franchises uh, with, you know, um, very, you know, passionate fan bases. So I just wonder if if you think that creeping Americanization is, is an influence at play here. I, well, I certainly think all, all of these ideas do come out of, um, do come out of ownership. I mean, it's worth saying that obviously the first time this was proposed was 2008, which was before, Trying to think what American owners there would have been in the league then. There would have been the Glazers. There might have been Randy Lerner at Villa. Um, the fact that it's come up again, maybe it's no coincidence that we've obviously got more um, Americans in the league. I think, obviously, the danger is thinking that, yeah, international games in of themselves are, um, you know, something that has made Americans or, or further propelled American sports to further success. I think that clearly the, the kind of moats that American owners are able to build around franchises is very different to the, to the threat of massively variable revenues that can exist within European football. And that's the cause of a lot of angst for, for ownership groups over here. So it, I, I, I don't disagree that it's potentially a, an Americanization idea, but I, I um, think that anyone thinking that international games might be a kind of a route to having the kind of best elements of American sport is probably a bit, a bit dangerous. Um, but yeah, I, I think uh, certainly uh, an interesting an interesting topic um that there's you know there's clearly a desire somehow for the premier league to kind of reach further and it's managed it was the first league to do that successfully through through kickoff times i think playing early kick particular to to attract an east asian audience is only in recent years that Serie A, for example have, have followed that trend um but yeah whether whether you can actually have meaningful games i, I just can't i can't see it really in the in the short term um, Dan, did you want to chat uh, chat Super League? Obviously, saw the statement out of um, out of UEFA yesterday. Um, it was kind of, I think, for anyone not kind of legally trained as as I am, it was it felt a bit kind of strange. It was kind of a bit of an odd statement. What you know? Why are you withdrawing proceedings? Why is, why are you saying it is as if nothing had ever happened? Um, so, do you mind kind of, for my benefit, if nothing else, explaining what's what's happening there on on the Super League case? No, for sure, I'll try my best and. There's a number of um, yeah interesting threads I think we can we can touch on. What I would say is there's there's been some really good coverage. Um, uh, Tarek Punja in uh, the New York Times has um, has written a couple of things um, on it today, and a really nice Twitter thread as well, which sums quite a lot of the points up. But in um, in in summary, um, the the reports and at least UEFA have come out with a statement, and there's been uh, quite a lot of different reporting based on the Madrid court. Uh, effectively a court case that's been going on at present and effectively an, a type of order slash injunction that was put in place by a Madrid court and a Madrid judge back in April, I think it was, where um, 
uh, you know, the judge more or less came down hard on UEFA really for um, suggesting that um, they were potentially acting um, anti-competitively, that UEFA was, by uh, prohibiting um, uh, the, the then three, which was Real, Juve and Barcelona, from um, um, continuing on their Super League journey, regardless of the other the other nine clubs pulling out live on the Dan and Omar previous show. And um, the reason why it's of interest, I think, is because what 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 has been going on is that the court has basically put in place a type of order, I believe. I'm not the Spanish law expert by any means, effectively prohibiting. UEFA um, by way of at least staying any disciplinary process that UEFA could then take against Real, Juve and Barcelona for their their continued um, participation in the Super League. And remember, the other nine clubs came to agreements and settlements with UEFA saying, we're really sorry, some prize money that's going to be distributed accordingly and we promise not to do it again. Um, the three rebel clubs really refused to take part in that settlement. And what's come out of the, the court and news press release today is twofold. One, that whereas before the disciplinary process, which I guess UEFA would have tried to instigate in order probably to ban ban those clubs from future Champions League um, competitions, that stay has now turned into um, um, a a decision by UEFA which effectively null and voids the disciplinary process. Um, Now, there's certainly a question over whether UEFA at a later point, because they are basically obliged to do that by the Madrid court, um, could start that process again after the Madrid court decision has been appealed or other things, but that's something to, to look out for. The second thing which UEFA have apparently done today is they have actually um, asked for the judge, uh, the Madrid court judge, to be removed from um, his position based on procedural or bias irregularities. So I don't know how that actually works in um, in Spain, but again, in the UK, that's a um, a difficult um, process to effectively recuse the judge, the judge having to recuse themselves from from the matter. So um, again, in the background of that as well is a referral to the Court of Justice in Luxembourg to hear matters of European law um, as to whether UEFA um, is abusing its monopoly, its dominant position as the competition organiser um, for uh, effectively putting in place uh, sanctions and or threats to stop the clubs from breaking away. Now, it would seem, at least in the short to medium term, that um, the other clubs, the nine clubs, aren't suddenly going to come running back, even if there is a favourable decision by the Court of Justice towards the three clubs. Query how long that's going to take, possibly a year or two for that decision. But I think what needs to be obviously borne in mind is this is not going to be a short-term process now. Um, Juve and Agnelli came out with quite an interesting press statement, I think, yesterday or the night before, basically extolling the virtues of the Super League and why it was absolutely essential. Um, and I think if it is going to be structured or restructured in any way, it's almost certainly going to have a very different format to the closed shop, effectively, um, um, that was at least proposed, um, you know, back on back in April time. But, you know, this is something that will keep going for some time. The interesting thing as well is that the actual Super League company hasn't been dissolved. The nine other clubs are still members there might be contractual and other types of sanctions that um, Real, Juve and Barcelona may impose on the other members for what they, I guess, would suggest is um, their removal from the the 12 and whether there's actually going to be punitive or other penalty sanctions that the remaining clubs might impose on the the, the nine that effectively sided with UEFA is something to, to look out for as well. So watch this space. Um, 
who knows what's actually going to happen in the near future. But in the long term, the, the Court of Justice case um, and referral is going to be a fascinating read whenever it comes to pass on the um, on the legalities of UEFA's position as a competition organiser um, and effectively a competitor to, to the Super League. Yeah, it almost seems bizarre that something that was, you know, released so flimsily and, you know, with with seemingly such little substances kind of run into such legal issues. It almost felt like it, you could have resolved it through other means. But, um, yeah, I suppose the, the three clubs digging in has, has caused, caused all manner of, yeah, it's kind of, yeah, it's more than six months, well, nearly six months on now, isn't it? So long period of time. But it, I suspect, as you say, um, certainly some of the reports I've been reading is that it might, might reinvent itself as an open league and, and and so on, which which really would not resolve any of the issues that, that the clubs face in the first place, which is soaring costs um, that kind of continue to keep pace and overtake revenues. But uh, yeah, we'll see how it rumbles on. Uh, prediction for tonight, Dan? Man City, Barcelona for the for the podcast listeners who will listen back and, and hear how how you uh, saw the game going. So um, I think I think it will be a draw. Um, I, I think Messi will score, um, and I, I'm really looking forward to hopefully seeing Mbappe play alongside Messi because I haven't really. The truth is, I haven't seen too much. Um, league on the season so it's just going to be a what a fantastic game against actually city who defensively have been absolutely superb lately against you know you know on paper three of the best attackers over the last few decades in truth what what's your views yeah well, it's rare i would look forward to a group stage game i'm not i think the group stage format of the champs league is fine uh, i actually think the the swiss star format from 2024 is going to be better um but this is a game i yeah i'm really looking forward to i think uh, i actually think Man City will will win. I, I thought they were really good on the weekend. Um, I think they are the strongest team in the favourites for the Champions League. Um, and it's clear from, as you said, I've not watched a huge amount of league now, but certainly from the numbers I've seen and, and the bits of um, commentary I've read, it's clear PSG haven't quite clicked yet. So wouldn't surprise me. Man, Man City went there and, and got something like a, a cheeky little two-one win. Very quickly, Omar, for our team, what were you thinking for Liverpool Porto tonight? I think Liverpool will win. Um, there, there, a, lot, a lot of talk about the goals being conceded, but I think it's, it's kind of a tiny blip. I don't think it's a systematic thing. Um, and I think obviously two back-to-back wins uh, would put them in a really strong position to, to go through from a pretty tough group. Great chatting as always, pal. All right. Cheers, Dan. Speak soon. Take care. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs please do subscribe to the Dundeal football podcast like share and tag me if you like the content if not my voice you'll probably also like my book Dundeal an insider's guide to football contracts multi-million pound transfers and premier league big business a bit of a mouthful it's available to buy in hard copy digitally and via audible all links are in the podcast show notes lastly podcast is powered by 13 which is a fashion brand i've started all proceeds go towards cancer charity research and particularly the stellar work done by john Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years you can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt hoodie cap or all three please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk that's 13shop.co.uk Thanks for listening.